Well, dear friends, would you take your copy of the Scripture and turn with me to Acts chapter 10. If you're using the chair Bible, you can find it on page 919. And we are picking up really where we left off last week in this engagement between Peter and Cornelius. And before we read the Scripture together, let us seek our Heavenly Father's help to understand His Word. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we come to set ourself before Your truth, for Your Word is truth. And we pray that as You speak to us through the Scripture, that You would make our hearts ready to receive, our ears eager to listen. Lord, would You use Your Word to shape our thinking, to correct our wrong ideas, to lead us to see that You are the God of grace and glory, and to cling to Christ by faith. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, friends, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's holy word? Again, we're in Acts chapter 10, and we're picking up with a paragraph break in the middle of verse 23. The next day, he, that is Peter, rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up, I, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit any one of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Well, thus far, God's holy word, and may he be praised for it. Brethren, please be seated. <clears throat> well, last week we began watching the Lord move the gospel into Gentile regions, and we saw two supernatural events. Cornelius, this captain of sorts, a centurion of the Italian cohort, is a God-fearer. He is a Gentile tied to the God of Israel and looking for the Messiah. And he received this angelic vision. In the vision, he was told, Cornelius sinned for Simon Peter that Peter would come and bring a word to you. Well then, secondly, Peter also had a vision where the Lord showed him that the distinctions of clean and unclean animals that these things were over, these temporary laws have come to completion. In much the same way that the sacrificial system has been fulfilled by Christ, 
this added ceremonial distinction, which separated Jew and Gentile, is over. So Jew and Gentile can be united together in the gospel. And while incredible supernatural things are happening, it's really striking that the Lord's ordinary ways remain prominent in the larger passage. When did the supernatural events happen with both Cornelius and Peter? It was while they were in their customary seasons of prayer. And what isn't the angel telling Cornelius to do? The angel doesn't tell Cornelius the gospel message. He tells him to send for Peter who will bring him the message of the gospel. Angelic preaching isn't God's ordinary way. Jesus teaches people to call upon the name of the Lord by giving a preacher to them. And through the foolishness of what is preached, God is pleased to save souls because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Peter will later tell people in Asia Minor, 1 Peter 2, you have been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So Peter the preacher, commissioned by Christ to carry the Gospel to all nations, has now come. The obstacle that Cornelius was a Gentile and Peter a Jew avoids close contact with him, Peter's been shown that no longer stands. You can have unity with this man in Christ. And those are the big principles in our larger passage. But last time we stopped with Peter just receiving the messengers. We didn't get to the Gospel preaching part. We're not going to get to the Gospel preaching part this morning either. But Peter received Cornelius' men and now it's time to go. And he and Cornelius are going to see that our God is truly the Lord over all. I want you to see three things as we make our way through our section. And we begin with great expectations. What an interesting night it must have been for Peter. His mind is reeling in view of this vision repeatedly shown shown to him that the unclean characterization has ended. And then he received the Gentiles to be his guests. Perhaps something that he had never done in his whole life. You know, it's one thing to believe that the Gospel can come to these dogs as they were viewed by the Jews. It's another thing to welcome Gentiles as your friends, to host them and serve them in your house. Well, Peter has recognized the Spirit of God is at work and that Christ is calling him to go with these men to Cornelius. So we read verse 23. The next day he rose and went away with them. Now notice, and this will be very important in the next chapter, that Peter doesn't go alone. Some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. It's very common in the ancient world to have people travel with you. You wanted trusted companions to protect you and give mutual care. But while Peter is going with three guys from Cornelius' house, he doesn't know them. But in the providence of God, these brothers from Joppa, fellow Jewish Christians, the next chapter will tell us there are six of them, they will go to be witnesses to what takes place. Very soon, Peter is going to take some heat that he dared to eat with Gentiles. It was unthinkable to a first century Jew mired in Pharisaic tradition that you would eat with Gentiles. But to confirm that Peter isn't going rogue, that he's following the Spirit and the Spirit has descended upon the Gentiles, these men accompany Peter. God is already doing things contrary to their expectations. 
Indeed, we're seeing our Lord shatters what men think is wise and what we erect as a tradition. Our God will never be constrained by the customs of man. The Lord rules by His own decree, and He had envisioned from the beginning the nations serving Him. You remember how you see this in the Old Testament? It really starts in the first promise of the Gospel, Genesis 3.15. Adam is told, along with Eve, that there will be a seed of the woman. We're thinking that is Christ, but it's also a people in union with Christ. A seed of the woman descending from Adam and Eve. And that's not just one nation, because where do we all come from, folks? We all come from Adam and Eve. So the Lord spoke in the very first promise of the Gospel that He would rescue a people, nations, through this great Redeemer. And then that's confirmed to Abram in Genesis 12. In you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The Jews should have had great expectations of God saving a host of people as they were alike to the nations. It's what the Old Testament clearly teaches. But their expectations were not shaped by Scripture. Brethren, does this happen to us too? You know, I think particularly for us with respect to our trials, we all know we live in a fallen world and we know troubles are frequent. And yet as believers, what expectation do we often have, and all the more so in a modern world where we try to give you a pill to fix everything? We expect clear sailing to glory. We expect a race with no obstacles. And then Peter himself confronts us in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when, not if, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You see what our God is doing? He dashes our expectations and He reshapes them by His Word. Are we being shaped by the Word? The Jews weren't. Are we being transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we expect what God declares? Great expectations, not according to our own minds, but according to what God says. And what's the greatest expectation you should have? That King Jesus is going to return and take me home to be with Him. And I want to live every single day in light of that expectation. Or maybe another expectation within context of the stuff Luke is teaching us. You know, we look at hate-spewing, hard-hearted people like Saul of Tarsus. Maybe you don't know anyone quite like Saul of Tarsus who wants to kill you. But we see angry unbelievers, staunch sinners, and we expect no way that guy can get converted. And then what does God do? He melts the hardest of hearts. He plucks brands from the burning. We ought to have great expectations of His saving power. Spurgeon once kind of fussed at a, a young guy, a young preacher, about his approach to preaching. Souls aren't being saved. And Spurgeon asked this really striking question. Do you expect people to get converted when you preach? It's like, well, no. Why not? You should. God is doing wonderful things. And so often, brethren, our God is too small. The text is saying God is bigger than what we can conceive. He does exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ask or even think. And we should be amazed by Him. He's blowing the doors off Jewish expectation. And then notice the expectancy in Cornelius when Peter shows up. Verse 24. 
And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Again, this is north of where Joppa was. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Cornelius doesn't yet know what Peter is going to say. But if an angel appeared to him and told him, you need to go get Peter to hear what he's going to say, it must be important. It must be a powerful message that's more important than my daily bread. And I'm not just the one alone who needs it. Cornelius' eagerness spills over into gathering not just his immediate household, but a whole host of people, relatives and close friends. In other words, Cornelius is using his sphere of influence to bring a bunch of people to hear a word from God. What a model that should be to us. Isn't it kind of reminiscent of Jesus sending the now saved, converted, former demoniac to go tell his family and friends what the Lord has done for him? Only here, Cornelius has a sense that the Lord is going to meet with us. We'll come to that in a few minutes. If the Lord is going to stoop to meet with us, don't you want to be there? If you knew you were going to get a message from God Almighty, a message of great blessing, wouldn't you want other people to hear the message? It reminds me of people hearing that George Whitfield, the great 18th century gospel preacher in America, that he was coming. Whitfield was a powerful preacher, unfolding the riches found in Jesus Christ, challenging sinners to repent, moving minds and melting hearts. And there was a great excitement to hear him, no doubt, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But when folks heard that he was coming, they dropped everything and they came. They didn't have cell phones. They couldn't send a text, hey, Whitfield's showing up over here. No, people would just scatter around and announce, Whitfield is coming. And there's a story of a farmer. His name was Nathan Cole in Connecticut in 1741. It was announced to him while he was in the field at 10 a.m. on a particular day that Whitfield is preaching at Middletown at 11 a.m. Now, Cole was roughly an hour away on a blazing horse to the spot where Whitfield was going to preach. But when he heard that word at 10 a.m., he dropped everything in the field. He ran home. He got his wife. And the two of them set off 12 miles by horse, to go here preaching. And Nathan would drive his horse until it ran out of breath, and then he would get off and run and tell his wife, don't slow down for me. And then when he couldn't run anymore, he would get back on the horse. As he approached the town, he heard rumblings like the rumblings of thunder. Hundreds of horses. He saw massive clouds of dust rising in the air as people were flocking to hear the preaching of the gospel. And when Nathan and his wife got there on time, there were nearly 4,000 people gathered to hear this man of God preach the riches found in Jesus Christ. Why so many? Because people were eager to hear the gospel. Oh, that we would catch that kind of excitement for gospel preaching. Or that Cornelius' excitement in this passage would spill over in us so that we would tell everybody. We would try to gather as many as possible. Come hear the Word about Jesus Christ. Come hear the blessings of God. Come meet with the Lord and learn of Him. Come hear powerful preaching that will lay your heart bare and talk to you about free forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. Come hear of our God because His mercies are great. 
Is that our attitude about coming to public worship? Expectancy, joy, and we want others to hear. Great expectations. But then secondly, see with me, appointed rebuke. Well, this excitement soon spills over into over-the-top enthusiasm and misappropriated honor. Verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. And immediately you should ask, what is he doing? He, he's a God-fearer, right? I mean, he knows that there's only one true God, the God of Israel. It would have been a regular part of synagogue worship that he would have gone to to hear the Jews say, The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That's a call to monotheistic unity. There's one God, and it's a call to love that one God. Love Him exclusively, wholly, intensely. And Cornelius is now bowing down to Peter in worship. It makes you want to kind of back up, doesn't it? And ask some questions. I thought the Lord through the angel who appeared to Cornelius, said that Cornelius' life was one of devotion and his deeds rose to God like a memorial. This guy seems to be a believer according to the Old Testament based on what he knows. He's a living sacrifice. God is saying he's a faithful man. Well, this isn't faithful. This is just dumb. What is he doing? Well, the sin of Cornelius in this moment, brethren, and it is sin, it doesn't erase the truth about who he really is. A devout man who fears the Lord. Isn't it wonderful that the Lord doesn't just see the glimpse of our stupidity? Those flashes of sin? But He can see through that into what we are within? Do you remember how this comes up with Jesus and Peter when Jesus restores Peter? After denying Christ three times, Peter will, Jesus will ask Peter, do you love me three times? The last time Peter grieved that the Lord asked him, said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. The Lord sees the love that His people have for Him in spite of our inconsistencies. Cornelius could be stumbling here in a couple of ways. In the Greek culture as a Gentile, he may start to cling to an idea that many Greeks had that God's messengers carried divine qualities and that somehow God's messengers carried deity with them, divine qualities. The angel told Cornelius, go get Peter, hear a word of God through him. So if you have this weird idea that God's messengers are clothed with, de with deity, what Cornelius is doing is understandable, still wrong, but understandable. Or it could be that Cornelius thought Peter was the Messiah. If he carries God's message, is he not the Master? That's a conclusion that doesn't necessarily follow, but nevertheless, the mistake could be made. Yet whatever's going on in Cornelius' mind, notice that Peter, the Lord's apostle, doesn't just walk away. The Lord doesn't say to Peter, well, just forget it now. What an ignoramus. Can you believe he's bowing down to worship? Forget it. Walk away. Don't have anything to do with this guy. No. The Lord is patient with Cornelius just as he had been patient with Peter's sin when Peter was telling the Lord, no, Lord, you got it wrong, and I know better. Now, the Lord is tender in his dealings with people. Cornelius is a devout man. Yes, he's a sinner. That's why he needs the gospel. 
He needs instruction as to who the Messiah is and how Christ, the Lord Jesus, is distinguished from a mere man. He needs a teacher, and the Lord is giving him exactly what he needs. Now, maybe none of us this morning have ever been tempted to bow down and worship a preacher. But are there not various idols encroaching upon our hearts? Do we not give men in proper honor or give improper honor to things, to possessions? We need our idolatry, our false thinking, driven out by the word of truth. We need our patient and holy Lord to rebuke us, but then tell us what we're to believe. And that's what happens here. Peter Lee immediately picks Cornelius up and he says to him, Stand up. I too am a man. And brother, maybe this rebuke also tells us something about Peter. Men in the world crave adulation. Maybe we wouldn't call it worship. It is, really. But we, we crave being praised. Whether that be a Roman emperor in the past calling himself a god, or it be modern day athletes and celebrities talking about how they're going to live forever. Athletes talk about the notoriety they'll get from the statue outside the Colosseum or the sports records nobody will ever break. They'll live on in immortality. Or songwriters, they wrote a song and people will remember it forever. They claim to lift themselves up to snatch the honor that only belongs to God. Peter, you might think, would be drawn to that. He isn't. He doesn't say, oh, stop. No. He immediately deflects. I'm just a man. I'm a frail creature of the dust. I carry the gospel in, as a treasure in this jar of clay. I'm weak. I'm nobody. I'm just a lowly servant. You remember the way that John the baptizer spoke of the Messiah? That I, I'm unworthy to stoop down and loosen the thong on his sandal strap? Or later to say of Christ, He must increase and I must decrease? That's the attitude it should be of the people of God. It's all about Christ. Sometimes we need to remember that we are just men. Just frail, fickle creatures who can scarcely make it past the 80th birthday. Who have no divine power in ourselves. Peter will not exalt himself. He will exalt Jesus. And friends, there's probably no one bowing down to you in worship this morning. But are we, any of us, are we boasting in ourselves? Our intellect, our ideas, are we conscious that we're mere creatures who live in dependence on the Lord? And then notice another crucial word in Peter's short speech. Stand up. I too, more literally, I too myself am a man. What's Peter saying? It's easy to miss this. He's saying, I'm a mere human just like you. Now that seems pretty straightforward, but you've got to remember the context. Peter, a Jew, is speaking to a Gentile, to a guy, however respected as he would have been among the Jews for giving alms to the Jews, he's still regarded as a less than, as a dog. Gentiles were spoken of by the Jews as though they were less than human. They were the scum of the earth, vile, filthy creatures. 
That's why they compare them to street dogs. But Peter, whatever his views were before, whatever superiority he would have culturally felt, dismisses this idea. Even though this silly Gentile is starting to bow down to me, Peter still says, no, look, I too, just like you, am a man. You see what's happening? Peter is putting himself on the same level before God as this Gentile. That's another evidence of Peter's humility. It's an evidence of Peter's change in perspective. In fact, right after Peter goes inside with these folks gathered, he immediately relates to them, he's been rebuked too. The Lord's corrected my thinking because he tells them, that the customs he held are clearly wrong. Verse 28, you yourselves know how unlawful, not that it breaks God's law, but it breaks man's or the Jews' customary laws. You know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. The Gentiles would have never shared a space in their home with a Jew. Even the Jews at synagogue who would see Gentiles there while appreciating that they had showed up, they would have never talked to them at length after the service. They would have never invited them over for a meal. They would have never tried to understand the holes in the Gentiles' theology and how they could help. They wouldn't even engage with them. But Peter, as a Jew, is now doing just that. He's willing to be under the same roof. And why is he? Because God corrected him. Look at verse 28. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. God has taught me, Peter said, that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, whether believers or unbelievers, all people are image bearers of God. All people need the gospel. All people should be treated as those for whom the Lord cares and given the truth of Christ that they might repent and believe in Jesus. It's a little bit of an echo of Jonah here. The guy who so hated the Assyrians that he ran away from the Lord when commanded to go to the capital of Assyria, Nineveh. And he took a boat from what city? Joppa, which is where Peter had been. That's not a coinkydink. There's something really amazing happening here. When Jonah finally did go and preach to the Ninevites, Jonah got mad about it because they repented. And he said, I knew you were merciful and gracious, and that's why I didn't want to go. I wanted them zapped as less than human. And God rebukes him. Shouldn't I care about a people who don't know from their, their left hand from their right? Jonah never got the message that God is compassionate as the Lord of all. But Peter's getting the message. He's under Cornelius' roof and he's not there mad about it. He's recognizing there are no unclean people. The saving riches of Jesus Christ are not locked up for only one group. Christ is the Lord of all. Now Peter's going to come back to that in his sermon, but he's already highlighting for us the rule of Christ over all humanity and the need for all humanity to hear the message of salvation. Brethren, this has massive implications for us in terms of world missions. If whatever Peter has learned is right, and it's from God, so it clearly is, then God would not have us ignore people and neglect them, hide the gospel from them, 
Don't neglect them even if they have strange customs, like the cannibals to whom John G. Payton went pursuing for Christ in the South Pacific in the 19th century. Or even if they hold to strange ideas about a divine spirit in all things and therefore they eat the heart of creatures that they hunt like the Native Americans did to whom David Brainerd pursued with the Gospel in the 18th century. Peyton and Brainerd, to the eyes of men, appeared more civilized, less brutal, and so forth, to the pagans to whom they preached. But these men were willing to carry the Gospel into the dens of wickedness and to shine the light of Christ. Why? Because we are human too. We were lost but we weren't unsavable. We were deluded by the devil. And the Lord broke in with His light. And though you're deluded, Christ has a light and He can bring His mercy to bear upon you. These missionaries believe, I'm no better than these people. I'm just a man saved by grace. And you are men who need salvation by grace. Is that what we think? Do we look around at our neighborhoods, our communities, and see people who don't look like us. Maybe they're people with lots of piercings, lots of tats. Maybe they have, maybe they have strange colors in their hair, mutilated ears. Maybe they're embracing the gender-fluid concepts in their dress. Maybe they're people who just have different skin color than we do or a different accent. Do we see them and think, They're unclean. Can't interact with them. Or do we see fellow image bearers, people with souls who need Christ, people who share our humanity? And if I've been saved from the ruin of my sin and all of its ugly past, and you have no idea how ugly it is, then God can save that person too. You see, Peter is learning that the mercy of Christ is for all. He received a rebuke. I need to change my outlook. And I need to be willing to carry the Gospel of King Jesus to those people with whom I would not ordinarily associate. Brethren, may we see that too. And carry the Gospel to our fellow man wherever they are and however they appear. And then finally, see with me. God's presence in the Lord's command. Peter mentions with this now God-given new perspective that he obeyed the Lord, verse 29. should kind of laugh at this. I came without objection. It's good to see Peter finally not objecting. And he says, look, why'd you send for me? Um, Peter had heard Cornelius' guys the previous day tell him, but he wants Cornelius to tell me the story. And then Cornelius relates the details again of the angelic vision. It's the third time we've heard this story in the same chapters, kind of like what John was noting in our Scripture reading in Genesis. God's telling us the same thing three times in the same chapter. Why is the Spirit of the Lord recording for us the same thing again? We all need to acknowledge in the 21st century West, we do not like it when people repeat themselves. We do not like hearing your story one more time. I've already heard that. Well, the Lord is telling us again. Why? Three reasons perhaps. It conveys certainty as this is retold three times. This really happened. It conveys importance. This is a crucial event. You need to pay attention. And thirdly, the sovereign God is at work here. 
God is directing everything that's happening. So Cornelius tells Peter all the same things, basically. And the impression it made on him, Cornelius is still marking time by this event. It happened four days ago, about the same hour, verse 30. And then Cornelius did what he was told. I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. But then note the conclusion Cornelius draws as Peter has arrived to speak to all the people gathered. Verse 33. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Two statements here are worth pondering. First, let's not miss the declaration of this Gentile as God's messenger comes to preach to him and as they worship that they are all here in the presence of God. We often hear people talking about when God's people come to worship, when the church gathers, God is there. Sometimes we hear people quote Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That verse is actually talking about the proclamation of church discipline. It has implications for the principle of God's presence in worship, but it's not the primary thought. But this verse, Acts 10, is focused on sitting under the gospel preaching specifically and God being present. Now friends, God is always present. Isn't this a lesson that Jonah, our friend, learned? You can't go anywhere and get away from the presence of God. He's everywhere, yes, but there is a special presence of God a unique drawing near of the Lord when we draw near to Him in worship. Doesn't James tell us this? James 4.8 Draw near y'all, draw near to God, and He will draw near to y'all. Well, this is what happens in worship. We draw near to receive His gospel, to magnify the Lord by listening to the Word that is expounded and we are there uniquely gathered in His presence. Hebrews 12 will describe it as though we're entering into the heavenly Jerusalem to Mount Zion, coming to Jesus with myriads and myriads of angels and festal gathering and the saints of just men made perfect. You can't see the angels, but they're here worshiping with us. Doesn't this make worship, gospel preaching in worship, even more significant? It's significant for the preacher Because Paul tells Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ. Preach the Word. The preacher is preaching in the presence of God. Better make sure you get it right. It's serious. But isn't it significant for us all? As we gather to worship and to hear God speak to us, God is uniquely here today. Do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear His voice, Receive the Word. How are we hearing God's voice? He's taking the feeble mouthpiece of a man to carry His divine message. What a perspective that should give our worship. This is a sacred assembly. It's not just an assembly. It's a holy assembly. Because God has called us into His presence. I know that you recognize we do something at the beginning of our service called a call to worship, but do you know what's happening? God's voice is addressing you to dare to come into His presence. You can't do that without His grace. But He's calling you to enter in. And when the benediction is pronounced, which, by the way, we'll soapbox here, 
Don't leave before it. It's God's last declaration to you of peace, of love before you go. God gathered among us is speaking to us. He calls us to Him. He declares His Word as we leave. How are we hearing the voice of God? In the Word. Do you, do you see that? Cornelius is saying we're all gathered here in the presence of God. And what are we here to hear? Verse 33, we are here to, he, to listen to, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Peter, we are not interested in what you had for dinner yesterday. We're not interested in the details of your journey. We're not interested in what your opinions are about the Roman state. We are gathered here to listen to what the Lord has to say, what the Lord commanded you to say. Further, we want to hear all of it. All that the Lord has commanded to you. The apostles don't carry a message by their own invention. They don't get to put their own spin on things. They are heralds. A herald announces the king's message and he's supposed to say nothing else. That's what we want to hear, Peter. Only what the king has commanded. And do you see that Cornelius and the others crave it? We want to know exactly what the Lord has commanded. And that will be the message that Peter preaches. We'll get to the preaching part next week. But who is speaking as the men are gathered in God's presence? The Lord is speaking. Yes, He's using Peter, brethren, but the Lord is speaking through His Apostle Peter. The Gospel is not an invention of mere men. It's not a great story to inspire selfless service or to manipulate you. It is a divine message of salvation. And it's an unbelievable word that we get to hear from the Lord. That doesn't eliminate being a good Berean, making sure that the word that you're hearing is, is actually in line with what the Lord is saying. But it does mean we listen with a readiness to receive the very words of life. We gather to hear all that you have been commanded to say. The all is also the bad news. So that we might hear the good news. To hear of the destruction of our sin and that we're sick and we need a divine physician. But this Savior has come. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose for us. He is the champion. Peter, we want the full Gospel. We want the whole counsel of God. Brethren, is that what we want in the presence of God? Do we want the Word of grace and the call of grace to what it means for the way we live? Lord, take Your Word and seal it to my heart and use it to shape me. Is that what we want? May we learn from this Gentile hungry for the Word of God to be hungry for the Gospel of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we marvel at Your kindness to us to come with Your divine initiative of grace to seek us out with Your Word of truth and rescue us as sinners. Lord, we thank You that though we are often despised by our fellow man, that You do not despise us. You bring us messengers, heralds of salvation, who would preach and tell us of the way to be rescued from Satan, sin, and death. Lord, may we see Your grace to us in that and be ready to carry that message of salvation to others, gossiping the Word with our neighbors, our co-workers, bringing them to the gathered preaching of the Word, 
that they would hear all that Christ has commanded. And Lord, we pray that You would work these things in us, sanctify us by this Word of truth. For we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.